Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed a certain money lender... One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt, forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Lord, you have something to say, I believe, to every single one of us. Lord, would you come? Would you hide me behind the cross? Holy Spirit, take full advantage of this time and speak. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of the message is Living forgiven. Point one, who is this woman? So some have thought that this is Mary of Bethany. This is the same story of what is in Matthew 26, and it's in John chapter 12. This is Luke's version of the same story, the woman that comes in and breaks the alabaster jar in the middle of the party. And this is definitely not Mary of Bethany. I'll give you three reasons why this story is uniquely Luke and not the one in Matthew or John. Number one, Jesus, the, a Pharisee is welcoming Jesus into his home. This is clearly near the beginning of Jesus' ministry, not at the end. At the end of his ministry, the Pharisees had made it illegal to associate with Jesus. In fact, if, if anybody had information, they were to send, they were to let them know so that they could arrest Jesus. Very, very different circumstances. Number two, This woman is a notorious sinner. She is a sinner in the city that everybody knows. This Pharisee knows her reputation. Jesus doesn't know it, and that's what what is going on here. Whereas Mary Bethany is a notorious saint. She is famous for her devotion. She chooses the one thing. Thirdly, 
The, the lesson that is drawn, Mary comes in with this expense, very expensive perfume, and the message is that Jesus is being anointed for his burial, and this, is, this act of extravagant worship needs to be repeated wherever the gospel is repeated, that this is, this is a worthy response to who Jesus is. That's the lesson. In this one, the lesson has nothing to do with that. It's about forgiveness. It's about forgiveness and those that, that love little, are forgiven little, love little, da-da-da. We'll get to those lessons later. So then, so this is not Mary of Bethany. Secondly, is it Mary Magdalene? Some hundreds of years into, after the scriptures were there, decided this was Mary Magdalene. And there is a tradition that says this is actually Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene is mentioned in Luke Right after this, the next two verses after Luke 7 say that there are some women, including Mary Magdalene, of whom he cast seven demons out of. The chances are that this is not Mary Magdalene for a couple of reasons. One, why not name her? If this is Mary Magdalene, he just names her, why not say this is is Mary? What scholars believe is whenever it is somebody that Jesus or Luke interviewed as an eyewitness, he uses their names. But if it's somebody that gives a firsthand report of something that happened, they stay unnamed. So it's very possible that this story was witnessed by Mary Magdalene and told about, or one of the other women that is named, but it's not Mary Magdalene herself. However, this woman, we know, has had a previous encounter with Jesus where he forgave her of her sins. How do we know that? I don't see that in the text. Here's why. The whole point is that what she did was an act of love from the fact that she was forgiven. She is not loving him so she will be forgiven. She is loving him because she has been forgiven. There has been another time that Jesus has said, you are forgiven. And she's so grateful for that, that she breaks into this party uninvited and expresses this act of worship. Point two, what is true about Simon the Pharisee? First, he has invited Jesus not as an act of worship or devotion or honor. Jesus is there because he wants to put him to the test. He's not even given the honor of friendship. It was customary to wash their feet or to make sure somebody washed their feet and to give them a holy kiss. Jesus got none of that. When he addresses him as teacher, he's also a teacher. So it's at least we're we're equals. This is not this honoring thing. Who is Simon? He is the owner of this home. So he certainly has the authority. This uninvited woman comes into his home, is at Jesus' feet. He certainly has the authority to tell her to leave or make her leave. But it turns out this woman is serving his purpose. His purpose was to test Jesus. 
His purpose was, is this guy the real deal or not? And so when she comes in, he's like, we need to see what happens here. Because if he was a prophet, he would know how wrong this is, that she is in here doing all of this stuff. He would certainly, if he was the real deal, tell her to leave. I'm going to say some things that might, you might disagree with me on. Here's what else I believe is true about Simon the Pharisee. He presumes that his sins are fewer than this woman's. Jesus never tells him, if you look carefully, he never says your sins are fewer than hers. He does say her sins are many, but he never, he never says that, oh, you're the guy in this story that has the few sins. And if you read it closely, you're going to notice something else. He never tells Simon that his sins are forgiven. He says to her, her sins are forgiven, but he never says to Simon, oh, by the way, your sins are forgiven too. It was very difficult for Pharisees. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So Jesus, we're gonna, we'll do this parable later, so I'm not going to say too much, but it's very interesting because it's very similar. The Pharisee goes to pray, and instead of mentioning any of his own sins, all he could talk about is, thank you that I'm not like this other guy that's a horrible sinner. And here we've got another Pharisee, and what he's thinking about is not his sins, but her, her sins. It's the same thing. It was very hard for Pharisees. They wanted to always be in the right, and so if I'm in the right, somebody else has to be in the wrong. Look at John 9, 39 through 41. Then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they see that they are blind. Some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, are you saying we're blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied. But you remain guilty because you claim you can see. That brings us to point three. Isn't this going fast? <laughs> Lessons on forgiveness. Number one lesson. Sin can be thought of as a debt we owe God. Here, here it's, it's a debt that needs to be paid back. Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer, says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That when someone sins against us, it can be said that they have a debt against us, but ultimately, we all have this debt that we've accumulated before God. So in God's economy, you are created by him to be someone that would express him, express his love, express his goodness, express his righteousness in this world. So whenever you fail to do that, you have sinned against him. And it turns out that all sin is sin against God. There certainly are sins directly against God where we make idols and, and we don't worship him as God. We don't put him first. There are sins against God. But interestingly, 
All sin is sin that God takes directly to him. That whenever you hurt your brother or your sister, you haven't just sinned against them. That sin is part of your debt before a holy God. David says this in Psalm 51.4. He has killed Uriah. He has committed adultery with Bathsheba. Certainly he's sinned against people. But here's what he says. Against you, you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. You are judge and ultimately I am in your debt. What I did, I did against you. In, in Luke 15, when the prodigal is coming home, he says, I will say this. I have sinned against heaven and before you, Father. I have sinned against heaven. All sin is reckoned against God. And so we have all accumulated a debt of sin with God. So let's talk about how we accumulate debt. Number one, sins of commission. These are sins where you know it's wrong and you do it anyway. You know it's wrong to lie, to steal, to cheat. You know it's wrong to use the Lord's name in vain. You know it's wrong to uh, commit immorality. You know these things are wrong and you do it anyway. Those are called sins of commission. I know it's wrong and I'm doing it anyway. Sins of commission. You accumulate debt. Then there are sins of omission. That's where you know what the right thing would be, but you don't do it. Jesus said, um, you, you didn't feed me when I was hungry. You didn't give me to drink when I was thirsty. You didn't clothe me when I was homeless. You didn't visit me when I was in prison. You, didn't, you weren't there for me when I was sick. Lord, we never saw any of that. What do you mean? He said, whatever you didn't do to the least of, of, of these, you didn't do to me. The sins of omission accumulate our debt. And it's funny how the human, human beings work. We don't think of it that way. We think of it as, hey, I would have. I was tired. I had a bad day. I was in a bad mood. My personality type doesn't do well with this. Uh, and, and, and it's like just because you can figure out why you didn't do the right thing or did the wrong thing and you've got a reason for it doesn't mean that God sees that. God's like, wow, I never thought of that. You get a pass. You and you alone get a pass because you had a bad day. Anyway, um, so there's sins of commission. There's sins of omission, and then there's this terrifying thing called sinning against the light. Okay, Jesus says this in Luke chapter 12, verse 48. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be eaten with few bows. But from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. The more light you have, the more responsibility you have. Jesus says about Capernaum, this very religious Jewish city, that it's going to be worse for you than it was for Sodom. Even though Sodom was openly immoral, it's going to be worse for you. Why? Because if the miracles that I did in you had been done in Sodom, they all would have repented. That you guys have been given much. You've been given much light and you are accumulating judgment. It's going to be really bad for you on the judgment day because of all the light that came. This is what terrifies me about Americans. We have been given so much. 
There's so much light in America. Uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, 3, as a pastor, scares me. It says this. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? All the book of Hebrews is about Christians that are in danger of backsliding. And it's because, it's not because they've chosen to backslide. They are drifting away from the truth. And the, the author is saying, listen, this is a great salvation. This is a great salvation. And then he says, listen, if the people that lived when Moses was alive were judged severely, how much more are those that know the gospel? They didn't know much. They didn't have much light. And they disobeyed Moses and they were judged with severity. What, what's going to happen to us that we knew the gospel, we knew the love of God, we knew the grace of God, and we chose to walk away from it? This is called sins against the light. Accumulates more debt. And then this last one, oh my, influence on others. Jesus says in Matthew 18, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble that I love, it's, it would be better for you to put a millstone around your neck and jump into the lake and drown yourself. Because I see all those you are influencing with hurt. James says it this way, James 3.1, uh, many of you should not be teachers because teachers are going to be judged more strictly. They are, they are in a position of influence. I know you want to be seen. You want to be the guy that's got all the answers. Uh, don't do it. It's going to be hard. If you are called to be a teacher, um, you need to have soberness. You are accountable for all the fruit. We, we love to talk about the fruit of good things, that, that everything we did good and we, we got this person saved and now they went out and got other people saved and all that fruit is in our account. Well, it works with sin too. All of the influence you cause this person to sin, this person to sin, this person, and then they went out and multiplied sin in the world. That's a big debt. That is a massive, massive debt. And this is why when I think about Simon the Pharisee, he's a teacher. He's taught all these people the wrong stuff. I don't think he's the one that's only 50 denarii in debt. So how big is our debt before God? 50 denarii in today's money would be $2,900. It's a significant amount. 500 denarii in today's would be $29,000, which is a much bigger amount, but this is in a parable, and it's about a money lender, not necessarily God. Well, there's another parable that has a little more direct God in it, and that's in Matthew chapter 18. There is a king, and his servants are brought before him that have accumulated a debt. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, let me tell you how much 10,000 talents is. A single talent is 6,000 denarii. So 10,000 talents would be $3.4 billion in today's money. So not only does he owe $3.4 billion, but he's thrown in prison until he pays it off. Well, here's a, here's a problem. How do you work off a debt when you're in prison? You have no means of making money. 
So this, this is the human race in God's eyes. $3.4 billion in debt and no means to pay it back because we're all in a prison called sin. All in a prison where, well, I'll, I'll try to be good. I'll try to do better. I'll try to, but listen, the Bible says even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags in his sight. So the, our answer to pay off our debt has to be forgiveness. We have to be forgiven of our debt. So there's only one person that can forgive our debt. Obviously, the king himself is the only one that has the right to forgive a debt. So God, because our debt is against God, only God can forgive debt. The the Pharisees know this. Two chapters earlier, in Luke chapter 5, it's the story of the paralytic, and Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And they say, who is this guy blaspheming? Only God can forgive sin. Because the debt is against God, only someone who is God can forgive sin. And they, they don't think Jesus is God. They don't know Jesus is God. But Jesus has to be God if he forgives sin but it's not enough that he's God. To just be God and arbitrarily forgive sin would mean he'd have to deny who God is. God is holy beyond all measure. The only reason, the only way Jesus can can forgive sin, he doesn't just have to be God. He has to be a human that is willing to die for those sins on the cross. The holiness of God demands that sin is judged. Sin has to be paid for. The agreement that the son made with the father is bulls and goats you did not desire. Then I said, I will come. Prepare for me a body and I will come. I will be the sacrifice. I will be the righteous one that takes away the debt of the world. When he died on the cross, guys, he said these words, it is is finished. That word, those three words, it is finished. It's one Greek word. It's the word telesky in Greek. It's an accounting term that says paid in full. And it's written in the perfect tense, not the past tense. The past tense would be it's, it happened in the past. The perfect tense means it happened in the past, but its implications continue going for all time. (laughs) Telesky, it is finished. Jesus made the sacrifice for your sins, for my sins. He paid the debt we owed that we were in prison, so we had no way of removing our own debt. He paid it for us on the cross. So when Jesus says to this woman, you are forgiven, it is because he's God and because he's the Messiah that's going to die for those sins. He's the only one that can say your sins are forgiven. So, I have got three wrong ways that people deal with their debt. Everybody has a debt. It's not the same. Everybody doesn't have the same debt, but everybody has an awesomely huge debt against God. So here's the three wrong ways. Let's start with the atheist. The atheist says this, I don't believe in God. Because I'm scientific and there's not enough evidence to to believe in God. That's ridiculous. (laughs) Look outside. Uh, There's not evidence 
Are you t- the, the beauty, the design, the glory of all creation? And what? You're going to say it created itself? Well, you're going to say it came out of nothing? No, that's ridiculous. The atheist is not dealing with an evidential problem. What's underneath, an a- now an atheist thinks he's dealing with that because God's given us free will. How many know free will is a terrifying thing? So you could choose to believe whatever you want to, but I've got to, I'm choosing not believe God. And he thinks it's about evidence. It's not about evidence. You know what it's about? Dat. If there's not a God, there's no debt. If there's no God, then I'm not guilty of anything. Then, then there's nothing hanging over my head. And so here's how I can get rid of all of my debt. I just don't believe in God. There's not a God, so there can't be a debt. That's one wrong way to deal with the debt. Here's another wrong way to deal with the debt. This is called liberal theology. So this is everywhere right now. In some of the major universities, the New Testament scholars. And here's, here's, here's liberal theology. The God of the Old Testament is a monster. How dare he think he can judge human, these poor human beings? How dare he judges them here and judges them here and judges them here? I don't believe in that kind of a God. I don't believe in that kind of... It's the idea of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins is barbaric. What kind of a God would have his son die in our place and and require a blood sacrifice? We believe in God, but we don't believe in that God. Our God loves people and is nice to people and would never ever tell anybody that they're wrong or that they're going the wrong way or that what they're doing is somehow he just loves... What is the advantage of liberal theology? What's it about? Getting rid of debt. If God's not like that, if there is no such thing as sin, then I don't have a debt. Because I haven't sinned. Because there is no sin. Because, why? Because I've chosen to make a God that I want. I don't want to be accountable. I don't want to be living before a holy God. And therefore, I change God. Isn't free will a horrible thing? God will let you believe whatever you want to believe. These are wrong ways to deal with that. There's a third wrong way to deal with that. A lot of times Christians get involved in this one. This is how they drift away from the truth. This is how they neglect the gospel. Here's the third way. It's called legalism. Legalism says this. I don't have much debt. I'm not saying I'm perfect, nobody's perfect, but I'm a good person and I have little debt before God and I'm doing all this good stuff so clearly I'm a good person and the problem is the, in the world are all these bad people. If all of these bad people weren't around and so I sure wish God would come and judge people because there's a lot of bad people in the world of which I'm not one of them. And it's funny Because oftentimes Christians start out very grateful that they've been forgiven, living in the joy of the Lord, and and express that love and mercy to other people. But as they get better and better and better, they move away from Jesus' goodness to their own goodness. And pretty soon it's about everybody else's sin. It's, It's what legalism does. The problem in the world is all the bad people. No, the problem in the world is your sin. You want to make the world better? Get yourself right with God. (laughs) Get yourself right with God. And then live that out in this world. It's just very easy to drift away from the gospel. Where Jesus is the hero and I'm the sinner. To I'm better and better and better. And I'm less in need of Jesus all the time. Be careful. 
How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So, point five, living forgiven today. This is really what the message is about. We've got 15 minutes. First thing you need to do with your debt is you have to own it. That's my debt. I sin in all of those ways. I've sinned by commission. I've sinned by omission. I've certainly received a lot of light that I haven't responded to, and I've influenced other in a bad way. It's true. It's my debt. You are justified when you judge me. You are a holy God, and I have sinned against you. That is my debt. Number two, give your debt to Jesus and accept the sacrifice that he made on your behalf. This is why Jesus came, is to say to you and to me, your sins, though they are many, are forgiven. I died for them on the cross, and it was my joy to do it for you. Because you you couldn't repay it. You had a debt you couldn't pay back. You had no way to pay it back. So I paid it for you. I lived the perfect life. I took the wrath of God Uh, for sin on myself. I shed blood for this. Now come and take refuge in the salvation that I have provided for you. Your sins in me, your faith in me has saved you. Go in peace. So what is going on in this text? If she's already forgiven... And that's why she came, and that's why she's expressing this love. Then why does Jesus say, your sins are forgiven? Go now in peace. So I thought a lot about this. Doesn't mean it's right. But have you ever noticed that just because you are forgiven, that you don't always feel forgiven? That you don't always walk in the peace that of salvation, but Jesus has said, I forgive you, but she is coming in here and she, the perfume is definitely worship, but the tears, the tears are, are being cried for another reason because all I can keep thinking of is, is all the sins that I've committed are coming back to me. How many know that the devil's an accuser? And he accuses us whenever we try to get close to God. He's accusing and oh, I've got all these sins. And, 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 and then not only do you have the devil, but then you have uh, just this, the temptation to sin again. I feel like I, I, my thoughts are to, to do it again and to go back there. And, to, and what kind of a horrible person am I? And so she's, she's coming in and she's crying these tears. I'm not who I want to be. I, I feel like I'm getting pulled back and I want to be with you and I love you, and, but I'm being pulled back. And Jesus has to say it again. You are forgiven. And now he says, go in peace. Go in shalom. I want you to not just be forgiven. You're already forgiven. But I want you to live forgiven. I want you to live in my shalom. So I've got two stories to tell. One is my friend Kevin. I've gotten his permission to tell his story. I talked to him last week. Uh, Kevin is doing amazing. He's in Minneapolis now. He's He's getting married soon. He's, he's 
in charge of his Alpha at Alpha class at his church. He works in the parking lot. It's a huge church, and he manages the parking lot. And he said, I'm at that church more than I'm at home. And, and, uh, but Kevin's story started back in Montevideo. He, he came to our church. He got saved in our church, and him and I would start meeting, and Kevin, there was no one more tender than Kevin. He just said, yes to God, yes to God, yes to God, but he kept saying yes to alcohol as well. Kept saying yes to partying, and he'd go to, he'd go to the, the bars, he'd, he'd be drinking with them, and he'd be trying to witness to them, and the whole thing was just very, very confusing, but he was regular church. And, and then when he was gone a month, I'd know Kevin's back out there, and he'd come, and he's always repentant, always wanting to be forgiven, always wanting a new start, but he just couldn't, he couldn't say no. And so they moved away, they moved up north, and his wife got a really powerful job, and, and his job wasn't paying as much as hers, so he feel, felt bad about that, and so he found refuge in the bottle. And we would talk, but it was dark. It was very, very dark. And then he did something horrible. And the police found out, and he went to jail for two years. He was in jail. And he called me in prison. He called me while he was in jail, and we would talk, and we would pray, and talk about the new beginning, and talk about things. And, um, but by the time he got out of jail, he had lost everything. He lost his business, his wife left him, and his kids didn't want to be with him. He gets out of prison, and now he's dry, and he's committed to staying sober and he says, I, I, just to be honest with you, I'm suicidal right now. Now, what I told him is going to sound really mean. So I want you to forgive me in advance. But this is what I said. I mean, keep in mind, I've got a long standing relationship. I said, Kevin, if you're planning to kill yourself anyway, why don't you try dying to yourself and actually living Christianity? You spent all this time wanting sympathy for your sin nature. Why not just die? Why not die to your reputation, what everybody thinks about you, you everything bad? Why don't you die and see if Christianity works? That's what he decided to do. And And his life has been getting better and better and better, but he got a revelation. He told me this last week. Pastor Tom, I got a revelation. Now, it's bothersome when people that I've told something a thousand times, get a revelation that God had to tell them directly because what I said didn't matter, but here's what God showed him. Thank you, Kevin. He said, here's the revelation. I'm waiting for something out of heaven. He said, temptation is not the same as sin. He said, what's going on in my life is I have been tempted, so I always feel dirty because I'm tempted, and I always feel bad about myself, and that always drags me down, and so I've been on this roller coaster, but I found out temptation is not sin. Temptation is temptation. Just because I'm tempted doesn't mean I've sinned. I can say no to temptation. It's not an attack on me. I can just, temptations in the world, I've got a sin nature, I've got, there's a devil. Temptation will always be in my life, but that doesn't change my status as a favored, beloved son of God. He was forgiven, but he had trouble living in peace because he was equating temptation as sin. All right, here's the second story. Young pastor asked to get together with me. We got together. I love this guy. He, he's very anointed. He's a great speaker, great pastor, but pastor to pastor. He wanted to just talk about some stuff. 
And he said, tell me the difference again between conviction and condemnation. He said, I, he said we're seeing great things happen at church, but I, 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 will, I will get so down on myself that I feel like I'm not even called to ministry. Tell me what the difference is clearly between conviction and condemnation. I said, well, well conviction, the source of conviction is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will always attack a specific sin. He will let you know this is what was wrong. This is what you did wrong or what you said no to that you should have said yes to. He will show it to you so that you can confess it. What you do when you're convicted, uh, you, you confess your sins, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So before um, you, you confess sin, the enemy tries to get you to justify it, and the Holy Spirit will help you not justify it. He'll convict you. No, it was sin. You did it. You're the man. You need to own it. And confess it. And then when you do that, the blood of Jesus cleanses you again and makes you right with God again. Now, condemnation, very different. Condemnation is from the enemy. And the enemy doesn't attack your specific sin. He attacks you. He accuses you. And he, the Bible says he accuses day and night before the throne of God. As you try to get close to God, he will accuse you, not you, not you, not you. And it says that they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony about that blood. I'm gonna ask the worship team to go ahead and come because we're almost done. You can't overcome condemnation by trying harder. You can't overcome condemnation by giving God a list of how good you have been to try to get this to go away. God, did you see this? It didn't come from God. You can't confess your condemnation to God. And God, I feel condemned. Um, God, forgive me. God, forgive me. God, forgive me. If God was the one convicting you, he'd forgive you. But he's not, he's not involved right now. It's the enemy. You overcome him by the blood of the lamb. You need to stand against him. You need to say, Mr. Enemy, yeah, I did that. Yeah, I'm not perfect. Yeah, I might fail. But that's not my whole story. My whole story is this. Jesus loves me. He died for me on the cross. And my story is connected to his story. This was never about my goodness, Mr. Devil. This was about his goodness. This is about his generosity. I am defined not by my sin, not by my failure, not by your accusation. I am defined by the grace of God. I'm defined by the blood of Jesus. This is who I am now and forever. And I said, so bro, once you confess your sins, God's not the one talking to you about your sins. It's the devil. He's accusing you. You're trying to get forgiven of something. You're already forgiven him. You need to stand against. He's like, oh, that's what I've been doing. That's what's going on. That's totally what's going on. <laughs> Folks, God doesn't want you to just be forgiven. He wants you and I to live in his peace. She comes in, she is forgiven, but these tears are tears of anxiety, tears of stress. And Jesus says, daughter, you are forgiven now. Your faith in me has saved you now. I want you to live in my shalom. I want you to live in this, this bubble of my well-being. 
I want to say, this is part of your necessary equipment. Ephesians 4, 6, and 7 says it. Be anxious for nothing, but everything make your request known with God with thanksgiving. And the peace of God, the shalom of heaven, will guard, it will act like a guard over your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Why? He wants us to live in this peace. We, get, we, we were getting a lawnmower a couple of years ago, and it there's a big sign on it that says no ethanol in this engine, gasoline with no ethanol. And you'd think that'd be enough that it was written right there, but the guy looks me in the face and he's just passionate. He's like, don't put ethanol gas in here. Do not. This is pure gasoline. Now, let me tell you why. Let me tell you why I have to tell you this. Because you're, you won't know it because your mower will still work on ethanol gasoline. But your engine will be slowly being destroyed. Your Christianity will still work out of guilt, fear, anxiety, and all the things that we, all the motives that we do stuff, but it's slowly destroying your spirituality. Jesus died on a cross, not just so that you'd be forgiven, but so that we could live forgiven, that we could live in the shalom of heaven. Why? Because people out there need to be drawn to it. They need to be drawn to a Christianity that works, not a Christianity that's just this constant failure, constant anxiety, constant shame, constant guilt. That religion is not attractive. So God doesn't want to just forgive you. He wants you to live forgiven. He wants us to live in the shalom of heaven. 